Hi, I am very excited for this episode today. Um, it's with a good friend of mine from uni, David Dunn, who is not only one of the most intelligent people I know, but he's also a performance nutritionist and works with the likes of Harlequins, um, boxers like um, Mick Conlon. Also, um, he was there with Bradley Wiggins as well. So, yeah, he's well-versed. Very, very experienced and, like I said, very knowledgeable. Um, today went into a lot of how boxers can safely make weight and best kind of weight-making strategies um, alongside supplementation. Um, things that you kind of white-collar athletes as well. Um, strategies that they can use to optimise their performance. But anyway, I'm not going to give any more away. Just dig in. And honestly, I'd have a pen and paper ready for this. This show was excellent. Hello and welcome to another show. I'm here um, with a good friend of mine from university. Um, performance nutritionist named David Dunn. So, Dave, you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. I mean, firstly, look, thanks a million for for inviting me on. Always good to catch up, especially um, yeah, many moons after we met. So, mm -hmm. so as you've said, my background is in performance nutrition. That's where I work now across uh, various Olympic sports, as well as with different sporting organisations, including um, the European Tour Golf. Harlequins Rugby and some athletics athletics teams over in the US. I did my undergraduate at St. Mary's University in Twickenham, where I met yourself, Kieran. Um, I did my undergraduate in nutrition and sports science before carrying on and doing a postgraduate qualification in sports nutrition and I'm now completing a PhD in, in behavior change. So it's been, been a whirlwind of a journey, I suppose, since our undergraduate days. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Um, I just want to touch on, on that actually a little bit, talking about the behavioural change. So how long do you, um, or actually what sparked your interest in the behavioural change? Sure. So I suppose originally when I started working in, in professional sport, like most to the younger practitioners at a university, you, you have all this knowledge and you kind of want to go and, and help educate people and quite quickly in my applied role, I think at the time I was working with um, British canoeing and we had lots of contact and we were, we were doing a lot of education and it became quite clear that, you know, education wasn't necessarily translating to changes in behavior. So we can all know what to do. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to do it, but likewise on the flip side of that, somebody might not know what to do, but they can still do the right thing if the environment was structured the right way or if a sort of a nudge or a prompt was provided at the right time. So I started to introduce some digital media and some, some private social media groups alongside my practice back then. And we started to run some private Facebook groups where we looked to push notifications to certain individuals at certain times and found that one, it made me a bit more scalable. I didn't need to be there and I could provide them a piece of information or a nudge or a prompt at a more time specific uh, part of the day. So for example, it might be something to do with what they should be doing for their, you know, for overnight recovery and a pre-bed snack. 
if I tell them that at, at nine in the morning, they're very likely to forget. But if I could tell them at nine and we remind them um, at that time and we start to trigger nudges at those times to help that habit occur on more than one occasion and start to build that habit. Um, I got really interested in that and sort of some of the success we had with that and introducing these digital tools. And I suppose from there, I, I, I really wanted to look at this a bit more. So I got particularly interested in how technology, one, could make us more scalable, and then two, how it could be used to deliver these behavioral interventions. And I suppose quickly from there, um, I said I wanted to take it a bit further, and I self-funded a PhD looking at uh, behavior change and technology and specifically focusing on, on nutrition and diet-related behaviors. And as I sort of went down, went down that route, I got exposed to different uh, theoretical approaches to behavior change. And the one I'm primarily focusing on for my research is, is really centered around um, Susan Mickey and Louise Atkins' behavior change wheel. And at the center of that, that wheel is a, a model of behavior change called the COMB model, which states that for a, for a behavior to occur, somebody needs not only the capability, and that capability you know, could be um, having the knowledge, having the skills, it could be physical and psychological, uh, but they also need the opportunity and the motivation to do it. And, you know, that model made me quickly realize a lot of what we do or a lot of what nutritionists are educated to do at university level is to increase someone's psychological capability, um, you know, improve their knowledge, you know, help them know how to cook, etc., cetera, um, or even give them the physical skill, you know, help them to cook. But we often miss these these other elements of increasing their social and physical opportunity um, and looking at how we can deliver interventions that, that target both their reflective and automatic motivation. So that really got me interested and in that kind of, I think ever since I've gone down that route, I found, I found it fascinating. And I think it makes sense. You know, we all know, you know, most of us know what to do, um, but we still don't do it. And I'm sure that we can apply that to some area of our life, something we'd like to improve, but for whatever reason we haven't yet. So for me, I've, I've been very fortunate to come across a, a very good team. I started working with a research team myself, uh, a computer scientist called Rodrigo Mazora, a data scientist, or sorry, a, a medical statistician called Xiaoxi Yan, and a behavioral scientist called Carmen Levevre. And we've sort of been working as a multidisciplinary team looking at how we can work together to use technology to deliver theoretically driven behavioral interventions, I suppose, at scale um, and how they can adapt to individuals over time. So I've, I've really jumped across the tracks and, you know, not necessarily left nutrition or jumped out of nutrition, but, but certainly put my toe in, into something else. And it's been fantastic. It's been very enjoyable. I think it can apply across many different aspects of life, you know, behavior changes, you know, there's, there's so many different areas, right from government policy levels down to individual behaviors uh, for health that it applies to. Yeah, I mean, that that's, sounds fascinating because I've, I, from my um, time as a personal trainer, I remember it's one of the biggest things that I became so engrossed with as well because you can give people the greatest nutrition plans, you can give them the greatest training plans, but if it doesn't really fit into their lifestyle, they're never going to follow it. And obviously adherence is key to a real achievement in anything. 
Um, so what you're saying there, what you've met that team. So is there something you're trying to develop that you can, like you say, kind of push this out to people? Yeah, so originally I, I got introduced to these other uh, academics through, through a UCL network and we collaborated on some research about four years ago and we realized we worked pretty well together as a group, which was great. Uh, we were led by Rodrigo Mazura at that point and we carried on looking at how we could expand that research and after spending more time looking at how we could carry on our research, we, we realized we were actually pretty good at at building and delivering behavioral interventions using technology. So since then, we actually decided to develop our own nutrition platform. So specifically for athletes in this instance, just, you know, for me, that's my background, my area of expertise. And we collaborated and we're in the process of, of finally um, almost bringing to market a product called Hexus Performance. And Hexus will be a nutrition app for athletes and it will help them to periodize their intake uh, according to their training load so the same way that you know you know Kieran for you and boxing you know you're not going to spar every day of the week you might spar on Monday you might have some longer endurance runs on Tuesday you might have a rest day on Wednesday you might have some strength work and some um, some high intensity work on Thursday there's a very different exercise stimulus each day so what Hexus will do is it'll be able to translate your training programs into a periodized, or we call it coded, um, nutrition program. So you can amplify your training or your response to training through your nutrition um, and also help you achieve your goals without sacrificing performance. So we're, we're really excited about that. And we're a couple of months off being able to finally bring something to market, um, which is great. Excellent. So with regards to the Hexus app, would that also be very applicable to say like white collar workers? So, you know, people that do the training for say like the marathon um, and events such as that. So people that have like your full time jobs, but then on weekends are like to go out and do long, let's say you're like part time athletes. Yes, 100%. Uh, you know, it would be directly applicable because really what we're looking at is we're looking at gathering a bit of information about your lifestyle, um, i.e. like the, the type of work you do and, and how active you are in your daily role, as well as your health goals. So do you want to build new muscle? Do you want to lose weight? Do you want to maintain weight? And then we collect a little bit of information about your planned training. So, you know, whether you're training for a marathon and you're training twice a week or six days a week, if you're doing double days, we'll ingest that and we'll turn that into an actionable plan that, that fits what you need and that what you can adhere to. And you mentioned adherence and adherence is, it's really important. Uh, there's no point building the best nutrition plan in the world, like you said, and you know, it's, you know, no one's going to stick to it. So we've actually incorporated a, a very simple, but very powerful traffic light system and how we code our meals. So we look at, you know, having lower fuel requirements um, as red, or we just sort of have that as low. Then we have our amber, would be uh, more moderate. When I say you know fuel, I'm really referring to sort of carbohydrate and calories, or carbohydrate and, and total energy. And then our green would be you know okay, you got the green light. Let's have a good high carb meal. This is now about performance. We want to go. We want to go fast. We want to go hard, and we want to recover. 
So if we look at your week, day by day, meal by meal, and we're able to assign a code um, from that traffic light system to each of your meals and snacks, and then we compare them with actual options in terms of recipes and foods that suit what you need, that match not only your carbohydrate requirement to fuel your workload appropriately and the energy to fuel your workload appropriately, um, but also matched in terms of how much protein we need to protect your muscle. So even if you are in an energy deficit, that we're not sacrificing lean muscle when we're dropping weight, that we're protecting that and we're making sure that we're, we're prioritizing losing fat mass. Yeah, very much so. So I want to segue slightly from there into, um, into combat sports because it was like what you're saying is a lot of people, when you're in an energy, an energy deficit, you do sacrifice some muscle that's obviously going to be catabolized for energy. So obviously being, um, being a boxer and I'm guessing you have got an awful lot of work and a lot of experience with um, weight making strategies and sports where athletes have to make weight. So what sort of, what's your um, strategies that you put in place for helping your clients make weight for, for combat sports? So what's the, what's the safest sort of methods that are out there? Sure. I think it's a great question. And I think it, in terms of combat sports, you know, depending on the sport, if it's MMA, if it's boxing, there are different cultures embedded in the sport. And within those cultures, there are sets of, of quite negative behaviors in particular that exist around weight making. We, we often see people taking quite extreme approaches to cutting weight, you know, very severe um, calorie restriction, you know, dangerous levels of, of dehydration that, I mean, some people have died for, you know, either actually while they're trying to make weight or, you know, we've also seen some scenarios where you could argue that people went into, into the ring in, in such a suboptimal state that, you know, the head injuries they suffered were more fatal than they needed to be. So, you know, making weight safely is, is essential. And I think it's really important to refer back to the literature in this and look at some of the work that Carl Lang and Evans has done up in Liverpool, John Moores, and he's kind of been leading on that weight making for combat sport athletes side. So for any of your listeners, um, looking up some of Carl's research um, and Dr. James Morton's research from, from Liverpool, John Moores, they have some great publications on, on how to make weight safely. Um, and plenty of good online resources. I strongly recommend you start there. The, the most crucial factor in anyone's camp, in my opinion, is the start point. Don't start making weight three, four weeks out. You know, we, I, or I strongly recommend somewhere between eight to 12 weeks should be a starting point for a camp, you know, in, in advance of when you're actually looking to start cutting weight. And, and it, a lot of that depends also on how much weight you have to lose. Obviously, if you only have a couple of kilos to lose, it's very different than if you've got 10 or 12 kilos to lose. Um, but as a rule of thumb, you know, I would be looking at this as an eight to 12 week camp. Um, so allow yourself sufficient time at the start so that when you get to the sharper end of camp you, and you need to be sparring, you're not you know, killing yourself to make weight and spar at the same time. So generally what we do at the start of camp then is we collect a little bit of baseline information. So on most of the fighters we work with, we look at their 
what we call their, their resting metabolic rate, so their, their RMR. Um, so that's the amount of calories that individual burns at rest. The reason we collect that is we want to identify how much we need to feed them, um, I suppose, at least how much we at least need to feed them on those rest days. We don't want to go below their resting metabolic rate as it could have negative implications um, for their health. We also look to capture some some baseline body composition information. So obviously we capture weight, but we also look at their DEXA scan. So generally from the DEXA scan, we get to see um, their levels of lean tissue or compartmentalized muscle mass. And the reason we collect that is somebody might be trying to make, for example, 57 kilos. So let's say, you know, I need to make weight at 57 kilos but I get my DEXA scan done and I get my body weight done. And right now I'm starting camp and I'm 65 kilos and I have 57 kilos of, of lean mass. You know, I'm already lean. You know, we, we might now need to take off some lean muscle from that person. They might have too much lean muscle for their weight category. Now the scenario there might be, do they go up a weight class or do we take the muscle off? In which case we need specific strategies to take muscle off. Now, we never like to take muscle off. We generally like to just focusing on to just focus in on maintaining muscle, um, and then trying to to drop some fat at a, at a steady rate over the course of the camp. So, anyway, they're the baseline characteristics we we collect. We'd identify the start point. We collect their RMR and their DEXA, and now we'd have a good idea of of how we can approach this scenario. The final piece of the puzzle we generally look at is then the training program. Like I alluded to, I can never write a nutrition plan without fully understanding someone's training plan and, and the physiological implications of that. So certain days are going to be more about high-intensity work. Some days are going to be long, steady-state runs. Some days will be strength days. Uh, and obviously, as we get closer towards the fight, there'll be an increased amount of, of sparring. Um, and they're quite draining. So generally, what we look to do at the start is we look at how much lean mus muscle somebody has and we try to protect that provided that we don't need to lose any so in the vast majority of cases um, we'll want to protect as much of that lean muscle mass as possible and try to drop some fat mass so to do that what we do is we standardize that individual's protein intake so we usually try standardize it at about two grams per kilo per day so uh, for me let's let's say I'm 80 kilos that means on a daily basis, I'm going to look to consume about 160 grams of protein. And then what I will try to do with that is I'll try to distribute that evenly throughout the course of the day over a minimum of four serving or four feedings. So for example, that could be a, for a boxer, it could be somebody who has some eggs at breakfast or some Greek yogurt with breakfast. Um, I could train, have my first session of the day, and then I might have some lunch and I might train again in the afternoon. I might have a recovery smoothie that has some whey protein or some Greek yogurt or some milk for some protein. And then again in the evening, I might have another serving of meat or fish at dinner. Um, depending on the size of the athlete, they might have another serving, uh, for example, some Greek yogurt, something that has some slow-release uh, casein-rich protein before bed. So the first thing we do is to standardize that protein intake to protect their lean muscle. Then what we'd look to do is we'd look at the training program and start to start to dissect it a little bit into how do we fuel each session? So what are the actual fuel demands of each session? So 
We know that protein is there to help protect our muscle. That's nice and consistent. Now we need to try to identify the sessions in the week that require more or less carbohydrate and more or less energy. So what we might start off by doing is trying to pick out the one or two, two key sessions that occur. And, and, you know, for boxers, these are generally sparring sessions or they could be heavy bag sessions early in camp if they haven't started sparring yet. Um, and we'd make sure that we fuel them well with carbohydrates so the athlete can both fuel and recover adequately from those sessions. And the reason why we don't sacrifice a huge amount of fuel around those sessions is those sessions are more about performance and we don't want a lack of fuel to be the limiting factor in that athlete's performance on that day. We want to keep performance high. We want to keep confidence high. You know, we're preparing for a fight. You need to feel good when you're performing at these high intensities. And that carbohydrate will help fuel those high intensity efforts. And in the absence of sufficient carbohydrate for, for sort of that, you know, moderate to long duration, high intensity work, we, we could fatigue early. So once we've done that, we then look at the flip side of that. What days of the week are probably better or what meals of the week are good opportunities for being in this calorie deficit or looking at we go going through periods of you know slightly lower energy availability. So we might determine that, you know, if you're going to do a five or a 10k fasted run, it's it's not now necessarily about performing in this session. This is very much a session focused on adaptation and improving an aerobic level of fitness. So we don't need to overfuel that session. And in fact, we might be able to increase the, the stress on the muscle by uh, placing this additional nutritional stress on the muscle or this absence of fuel. So we look for those other pockets in the week where people are either resting or doing some lower intensity activity. And then we'll sort of block in, you know, more protein and vegetable based meals. And, then we try fit that within our framework. So we collected that RMR at the start and on a, well, depending on how much weight somebody has to lose, we might look at um, building a meal plan that feeds that amount of calories determined by the RMR on their rest days. And then we might increase that according to the training volume on their higher intensity sparring days or, or tougher back pad session days and then reduce it back to the RMR on those other sort of lower intensity days as well. So the, the calorie deficit is really being induced by the training. And, you know, on average, we might be looking at somewhere like a, a 500 calorie, three to 500 calorie deficit um, most days of the week. Some days we might not target that if it is really about performance. So that's generally how we'd, we'd approach the start of camp. We'd, we'd collect some baseline information. We'd make sure we protect the lean muscle. We'd never feed somebody below their RMR, we would fuel and recover well from our high performance, high intensity sparring sessions or key delivery sessions during that week. And then we would make sure that we're not overfueling the lower intensity sessions or, or periods of rest that are really focused on, on weight loss and adaptation. But that would be, I suppose, overall a a general approach. We'd obviously look to support immune function during this period as well and make sure people have a sufficient amount of, of micronutrients in their diet and target seven plus servings of, of vegetables and fruit a day. Um, and we'd be very conscious of sleep and the importance that sleep will play throughout the duration of the camp, um, maintaining the actual athlete health.
out right from the Yeah, that's um, some things that you touched on there are absolutely amazing. I think one of the biggest things as well is, especially for Start until the time that they get Oh, so the internet's just gone a bit. Yeah, well, some of the things you touched on there were, um, were awesome. I think it's one of the biggest things, having been trained in multiple boxing gyms for, for years and years, decades even, and that is people never give themselves enough time. It's always about six weeks before a fight, they'll start thinking about cutting weight and they'll only realistically do it properly about four weeks out. And I think when you're doing that, then you have to go into these savage crash diets and then people wonder why the performances are just shot on fight night. Yeah, it's, it's awful, that kind of thing. And I suppose a big problem with that as well is when people are taking these... I suppose these um, last minute approaches to, like you said, like crash, take some weight off, whatever way they can, you know, they're, they're often losing muscle in the process. They just, they just want to take weight off. They don't care if they're losing muscle or fat. They don't care about the implications that it has for, for their health, their energy levels, their immune function. And like you said, performances suffer. Performances suffer because one, they don't feel good. You know, two, if we look at, combat sports it's, it's really about rate of force development can you can you generate power can you hit somebody as well as much as the technical and tactical side of things like if you get your technical and tactical side right and you get to land can you make that count for as much as possible and if you're now you know landing shots that you could have had more mass that could have generated more force behind it or more muscle to to really help with that you know there's there's so you're going to be, I suppose, a bit more ineffective. Um, not only that, but your energy levels will be shot. So if you need to swing the judges, so let's say you're, you know, you're, you're in Olympic boxing now and you need to throw towards the end of these rounds just to help sway the judges to get points. Um, and you're just too fatigued because the last four weeks have drained you. That, that's a real problem. So the reason why we, we did give that sort of bigger period at the start of that eight to 12 weeks, um, I mean, realistically, it should be a 52-week fight camp. People should be training like a professional athlete most of the year, finish a fight 100%, you know, have your, you know, five to seven days off, enjoy, still go on your holiday in an appropriate time. But it's not a, you know, I fight three times a year, so I do three times six, uh, six-week camps. You know, that's, I mean, you're a half-time professional athlete and then half-time God knows what. So, um, you know, the most important thing, I think, is you want to go into a fight feeling confident. You want to spend the last two or three weeks of your camp feeling sharp in sparring, feeling well-fueled in sparring to deliver a performance that you can, can work on what you need to work on technically and tactically to take that into the ring. You don't want to be going into a sparring session low on energy because you're just you're just hacking through making weight. You know you want to have weight coming off at a steady rate throughout camp, so you're gradually ticking down, and that you're confident when you come to those sort of last three weeks where you'll have your final few spars and you know your opponents will likely be getting tougher. That you know you feel good in those sessions and that you can arrive at the gym and focus on sparring, not focus on 
I'm going to have to do spar and then do another half an hour on the treadmill and then, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, that's, I mean, sport is about performances, you know, performing at an elite level. And I know a lot of people say like that the first part of the fight is, you know, getting in, you know, actually getting on the scales and, and making weight, but people make it a lot harder on themselves than they need to be. And I do encourage any, any combat sport athletes to, you know, to look at what's going on up at Liverpool, John Moore's, um, and what the guys have done up in combat sports up there, and I'm, I'm sure if they reached out, they'd be they'd be happy to help out um, where they can. I know they're carrying on some exciting research up there that might even offer some opportunities for members of the public. So it's you know the most important thing here is is athletes' health, and you know people are literally killing themselves doing this wrong. So it's just it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean. That's one of the biggest things that you see, obviously, there's never been a death in heavyweight boxing. Um, and that's because they don't make weight. Whereas you get people that are, like I say, they drain themselves. So on fight night, they've got no energy. So they're taking so much more punishment because they haven't got the actual energy to get out of the way. But then when you dehydrate yourself, it's the cerebral fluid around your brain, isn't it? That's, if you dehydrate that, then that creates more impact through the, uh, through the brain. Yeah, I think people need to be very careful with these dehydration strategies as well. You know, you can see some people dehydrating in excess of 10% of their body weight. Like, it's going to cause problems. You know, there's research to show that, you know, actually from, you know, if we were to take your, your biomarkers or your blood at that point, like, you would almost look half dead. Um, so how are you expected to fight the next day? I know uh, Reed Real is an Australian uh, performance scientist who actually – did his PhD thesis looking at acute weight-making strategies or safe acute weight-making strategies um, for combat sports. And he's actually been carrying out some online webinars recently as well. So for those of, again, your, your listeners that want to check, check out Reed stuff, um, in particular focusing on that acute weight-making side, um, what can be done, what shouldn't be done. Um, you know, he, he's got some fantastic, really useful stuff because, you know, Granted, you're not going to be on weight a week out from the fight. You know, most professional fighters will dehydrate um, a little bit. It depends how much or they'll manipulate their body weight acutely for a day or two or over a, a few days. Um, you know, and, and he has some useful suggested um, methods and strategies within that. You know, manipulating the fiber in your diet or the residue and what impact that has on the amount of insoluble fiber in your gut and how much water that holds. You know, people can help reduce body weight like that slightly over a 24, 48 hour period. If we reduce somebody's carbohydrate intake over a period of say five days, um, or we do some glycogen depleting exercise, we can deplete people's glycogen stores. Most of us will store about, when we're fully topped up, between four and 500 grams of, of muscle glycogen or, or store carbohydrate in our muscles. And each gram of glycogen will be bound to just under three grams of water, you know, so there's, there's weight to be had there um, where we're looking at manipulating fuel stores. Um, so there's, there's lots of different things that can be done. And he's also looked at, I suppose, a, a lower limit um, water loading strategy. Water loading can, water loading can go pear shaped People can, people can cause themselves serious, serious problems getting this wrong. Um, he has put forward a strategy in his research as well, uh, which looks at sort of lower doses over a four-day period. So I think it's three days of 100 mils per liter. 
followed by one day of 15 mils per liter. Um, so that's sort of working backwards from the day of the weigh-in. So all of these strategies are individual. They need to be thought through as a team or, you know, the fighters team with their coach, their medical staff to understand what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And they may need to be trialed in advance of the fight as well. You know, you don't want to do go into the biggest fight of your life, trying something new. So it's, it's really important to, to take a step back and, and really plan and, you know, allowing that 12 week period at the start just helps because you know where you're at consistently and you're sort of tracking and chipping away at this. So to give yourself the best chance on fight night, because you don't want to spend 12 weeks just focusing on, you know, on feeling, feeling terrible because you're losing weight. You, you want to improve as an athlete. You want to be a better fighter in whatever discipline it is. Um, and I think getting these things right only gives you an increased opportunity to be a, a better athlete in your chosen discipline. Exactly. And you're training to peak on, on the night. You don't want to get to a near the night and be at the lowest point in your whole training program because you're obviously absolutely like fatigued. Um, someone that I learned a lot from, and obviously you're on their podcast quite recently, is the Sigma, Sigma Nutrition. They do, um, I know they do a lot of, um, and it gives a lot of information regarding weight cutting. So I remember the difference between when I first started boxing um, to my last few years, I'd always make sure that even outside of camp, I would stay within sort of eight to 10 pounds of fight weight. Because again, you don't want to start camp feeling like Ricky Hatton and have like 10, 12 kilos to lose. I'd get to the gym and the boys who would literally have 10 to 12 kilos to lose and they'd have given themselves six to eight weeks maximum. And then that's the thing, every single day of your life from then up until fight night is not focused around performance, it's focused around fat loss. And you can't yeah. expect to be performing to the best of your ability when you are obviously so low on calories, so fatigued, um, so malnourished essentially. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange sport. It's a very strange sport. Yeah, so, if you look at other professional sports, like let's look at professional, professional soccer, you know, it's, it's a long season. You know, it's not like they play a game at the weekend and then they go, well, I'm just going to go and I'm off now for the week and enjoying this. Everyone has their, you know, you know, periods for break during the year. They'll have their off season period, but you know, it's, it's, because it's, it's tougher in the, the combat sport industry because you might only have two fights a year but you do need to stay disciplined for the majority of that year for exactly that reason. Um, and you see it a lot. You see a lot of people finish the fight and then the damage they do in the next 10 days makes the start of the next camp incredibly hard. Um, everyone's human. Everyone needs to enjoy, enjoy themselves after periods of hard work. I get that. And I think one thing that's undervalued in sport is at an elite level, winning is incredibly hard. And it is important to celebrate your victories. And, you know, in particular, sort of obviously the bigger the victory, then the larger the celebration because it's a short lived career and you want to be able to look back on it um, with fond memories and say, I made the most of that. But at the same time, in terms of the bigger picture, there's, a, there's really been able to enjoy something. And then there's putting on 10 kilos in, in three weeks, you know, so which which is mental so look at, Ricky look at Ricky Hatton every time he'd start he'd start camp he'd be massive 
That's, um, if, you ever, if you want a good book to read, read his autobiography. It's, um, it's amusing, to say, say the least. Um, staying on that kind of performance aspect then, especially with combat sports, what sort of um, rehydration and refueling strategies do you tend to implement with your fighters? Sure. So I suppose the most important thing to do is we would look at, at from an acute perspective, how much fluid we took out um, to identify how much we need to appropriately rehydrate with. And then again, sort of looking at the other physiological factors around that. So we're now, again, it depends if somebody is going into the octagon or they're going into the ring. Um, you know, we're looking to fuel X number of minutes plus a warm up at a high intensity. So we're getting somebody ready to enter really an endurance event um, that they need to operate at a high intensity for. So we need to top up their, their glycogen stores. We need to do a very efficient job at making sure their fuel stores are high going into the ring. So generally, as soon as somebody steps off the scales, we'll have identified how much weight they've lost. So let's say, for example, um, you had to take out two kilos to, to make weight acutely. You, you dehydrated or you manipulated your body weight by, by two kilos through a low residue diet, through depleting your glycogen, whatever it might be. We'd look to replace 150% of that. So we might rehydrate with three liters. And then what we do is 50% of that volume of liquid would be water. And then 50% of that volume of liquid would be um, an electrolyte solution. So we'd have sports drinks made up that would have some carbohydrate as well as some electrolytes. So rich in sort of sodium, uh, potassium and magnesium to replace those salts as well and to help rehydrate more effectively. We might look to address that rehydration period, uh, depending on how much fluid was lost over a two to six hour period. Um, and then sort of we'd start chipping away at that. We'd probably get, you know, a decent amount of that in straight away. So we might have a liter um, quite quickly after the weigh-in. And then we might sort of start sipping away at the rest of the, the fluid, I suppose, throughout that afternoon or morning or depending on when the weigh-in was. We'd also immediately look to have a, a high-carbohydrate snack to start that fueling process in the muscle. So we'd look for something that's actually higher GI, so higher in glycemic index carbohydrate to more effectively top up muscle glycogen for the next day. So again, at that time of day, if it's a snack, we've used things like um, you know, homemade banana breads before that might also be rich in, in potassium as well as we're looking to replenish that, as well as some carbohydrate and some higher GI um, fuel. Or it could be, you know, let's say we're going out for lunch. It could be, well, let's get, you know, some burritos, some chicken burritos with some basmati rice. Again, a sort of more moderate to high GI carbohydrate that's a bit lower in fiber um, to help top up that fuel store. So we'd look at that then. We'd, that would be predominantly our strategy for the rest of the afternoon. Carry on the rehydration process, have a higher carbohydrate drink and snack immediately post weigh-in and then follow that up with however many meals there are left in the day, we'd make sure that there's an adequate amount of carbohydrate in each of those to effectively top up that individual's glycogen stores for, for the next day. So we're going through a, a bit of a traditional carbohydrate load um, relevant to that person's body weight and, and the duration of their event. Um, that, that would pretty much be how we'd approach that, I suppose, rehydration and recovery strategy. 
I think it's also important to be aware that some people's stomachs might be a little bit stressed from um, making weight, being nervous the night before the fight. So often the day before a fight, we also look to reduce their fiber intake slightly um, just to reduce any potential, I suppose, gastrointestinal upset. So we would stick to more simple carbohydrates, things like basmati rice or white pasta. Um, and we know that those higher GI sources of carbohydrate are actually more effective at topping up muscle glycogen as well. So it's a win-win. Yeah, excellent. So I want to go into a little uh, quick fire round then. What are the biggest myths that you tend to find you have to challenge with regards to nutrition with your, um, a lot of your athletes? It's a good question. Um, biggest myths, uh, carbohydrates make you fat. Definitely one of the biggest ones. So a lot of carbophobes out there. And I suppose it's, it's just for people really to understand that it's, it's about energy balance and over consuming calories and excess calories relative to your energy expenditure will make you fat. Uh, whether that comes from carbohydrate or fat or protein, it, it doesn't matter. It's just, you don't need it. Um, so, and you know, how we really look to, to dispel that is to, to look at a periodized approach to their nutrition and we plan carbohydrates and, and relative carbohydrate intake around um, their training. So when they need, when they're performing higher intensity, longer duration sessions, we feel more. And then during those periods of lower activity or rest, um, we, reduce, we reduce carbohydrates. So it, one of the biggest myths is definitely carbs make you fat. And it's just getting people to understand what carbohydrates are very good for, uh, high intensity exercise, and then when we need them a bit less. So we build in that more flexible approach. Awesome. Then what about veganism in sport? Your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I, many people, many athletes will have different reasons for, for being vegan or vegetarian or, you know, whether it's cultural or religious reasons or, or environmental or ethical reasons. It's, it's completely up to that individual. And I suppose my role as a practitioner is to, to best support them. If somebody said to me, um, let's say we're working with a female athlete and she said, oh, I've gone vegan. And she said, she said okay, no, no problem. Uh, out of interest, why, why have you decided to change your, your diet? And she says, well, this influencer does it or you know, somebody on TV told me. Then I'd be inclined to have more of a discussion around what are the potential limitations um, as well as the benefits so that there can be a, a more informed decision. Obviously, if someone's made that decision for environmental or, or ethical reasons, then, then that's completely their prerogative. So I think from a nutritional side of things, the implications are obviously plant-based sources of, of protein vary. There are some better and there are some worse sources, but generally we need a combination of plant-based sources to get a complete spectrum of essential amino acids. So we need to combine things like a, a nut, a seed, a soy with a grain and a legume to get that complete spectrum of amino acids. So there may be more planning that's required in a, for a vegan athlete to get a sufficient protein intake to help with their muscle mass maintenance and recovery. Um, they may also have, despite having a, a vast amount of micronutrients in their diet um, because of all the fruits, the vegetables, the grains, the nuts that they're consuming, which is great, they may still have lower levels of, of B vitamins, which we need to be conscious of um, 
we may need to consider supplementing. They may have lower levels of muscle creatine, um, again, sort of an animal-derived product um, and supplements, and then lower levels of, of beta-alanine. And people may or may not want to sub or supplement with beta-alanine if they are vegan, because again, it's predominantly derived from, well, it is derived from animals. So there's a few considerations there. There are lots of benefits. Like I said, they'll have this massive host of vitamins and minerals and fiber, which is fantastic. Um, but it just needs more planning. So if I was to sum up everything for a vegan athlete, I would say very, very doable if you're a good planner and you're willing to commit to it. If you're just, you know, if you've recently become vegan and you're, you're not planning or you're not thinking things through, you make things challenging for yourself. So it is very doable, but you need to, to really commit to, to planning the process. Yeah, excellent. So, and next would be kind of touching on that then. What about supplementation, kind of top um, performance supplements that you recommend? Sure. I think um, with regards to supplements, it very much depends on the nature of your sport. So, you know, there are some supplements that I think are fantastic for certain sports that are just not applicable to other sports. So, I think, you know, I would take very much a, a food-focused approach first. So is everything in the diet optimized to be able to deliver the most of your, of your performance or the best performance you can? Once that strong foundation and basics are there and then things are well periodized to, to amplify uh, your performance and your training adaptation, then we can look towards introducing some supplements for performance reasons in that instance. It wouldn't be my first go-to in any in any situation yeah. Um, yeah. from my perspective if i was to say well if i was to say from a health perspective first what 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 might be beneficial um i think thing you know vitamin d for the majority of people who aren't getting a lot of sunlight in particular during the winter months is a very useful supplement and um, plays a key role in our immune function so i would definitely have that down i think a fish oil is for most people uh, provided they don't have allergies, is, is always good to include, again, from an immune function perspective, as well as providing us with good amounts of sort of EPA and DHA for inflammation and brain health. Strictly performance-focused, uh, I'd be a big fan of, of beta-alanine. So beta-alanine is a buffering system. We have a compound in our muscles called carnosine, and carnosine is made of, of two things. It's made of an amino acid called L-histidine, uh, which we have an abundance of in our diet, and then something called beta-alanine. And if we supplement with beta-alanine for a loading period, which could be, say, four to 10 weeks, um, and that loading could be, say, four to six grams over that period, we find that we can actually top up our muscle's carnosine store. And that carnosine actually helps to buffer the buildup of hydrogen ions during that sort of higher-intensity exercise. So we can actually delay our time to fatigue. Um, so really useful for people that are involved in... Um, sports like track cycling who there those big bursts of power that might occur over a few minutes like a team pursuit or high intensity intermittent field sports where there's those repeated sprints or even boxers who are involved in um, and fighters who could be involved in multiple rounds of sort of high intensity bouts where there is that buildup of of hydrogen ions that is causing their muscles to to burn and fatigue um so if we can buffer that build up and, and buy someone some extra time, then fantastic. But yeah, my, my top 
on a purely personal level is uh, I, I really do rate beat Halani and it's something we've used across across a, a wide variety of sports. Yeah, yeah. Anyone that's uh, supplement that knows the little tingles that it gives you in your face, the flush in the air. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's not for everyone. And I suppose that, that paresthesia that you're mentioning is, um, you know, some people can get really scared and get really uncomfortable. If you don't like the tingles, people can reduce the symptoms by splitting the dose and then having the beta alanine with food. So let's say I need to take um, three 1.8 gram servings of beta alanine a day. I might, or... I might look to have, you know, my first serving with my breakfast, my second serving with my lunch, and my third serving with my dinner. And having it with food and split can help reduce those symptoms. Some people think that it's not working if they don't feel the tingles. That's that's not true. Um, and despite popular belief, where people take it and they say, "I feel great," there is a loading effect. We are looking to to increase your store of muscle carnosine over a period of time. So, if you take your beta in the evening versus the morning. Um, you know, it's really about that saturation effect o- over that period of time. Excellent. What are your thoughts on, I keep saying excellent, so what are your thoughts on creatine? Yeah, creatine is incredibly useful in a number of instances as well. So again, it depends on the nature of the sport. Um, strength and power sports or explosive nature sports, it can be a very useful supplement, again, to help people when they're I suppose going through those training blocks where we're specifically targeting gains in strength and power, um, as well as those sort of repeated sprintability sports, uh, there's a very good rationale to use creatine. Actually, an, another reason or another place creatine has been very useful in recent years is actually looking at people that have suffered from concussion. Um, we know that the brain is in, in I suppose, a, an, well, an energy-deprived state um, Post concussion, um, and that there has sort of that there's that that the brain energetics have been altered, and it is less efficient at producing uh, or using fuel. So the brain would usually predominate on carbohydrate as a fuel source. So if we can find alternative ways to to help increase its energy or improve its energy, uh, then that's really useful. And you know, Nick Gant in New Zealand has, has published some research looking at this specifically, and creatine does seem to offer. Uh, a good therapeutic so, or, I suppose, solution for, for concussion to help improve the brain's energy availability um, in that state. But again, research will always be ongoing in this state. Very hard to get ethics to do human trials and knock people over the head with a frying pan and then give them creatine. So, But it, it does look really promising and it's certainly one, if you have suffered a concussion, it's one to look into and consider um, exploring the options that are there with, with your medical team. So touching on that as well, um, something I wanted to ask you was, have you looked into any of the research regarding um, creatine and things like Alzheimer's, uh, dementia, kind of the um, mental implications it has and cognitive performance implications of supplementing with creatine? Yeah, so very conscious not to step outside my lane here. This is... This is something, some, uh, a question for somebody that's done a, a PhD or multiple postdocs in this area. But yes, it does seem to be um, promising. It does seem to be something that um, does look to offer benefits to individuals who may be at higher risk of, of things like Alzheimer's or those more age-related I suppose, cognitive degenerative diseases. 
So certainly one to explore, certainly looks promising, uh, probably operating off a similar mechanism to what we're seeing in those concussion studies and those altered brain energetics. Oh, sorry, I've lost you. Oh, can you hear me now? There we go, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, something I've been quite interested um, in, especially obviously my nan um, suffering with Alzheimer's. That's one area that I've actually been looking at. But again, it's just as you say, the um, the research is still quite early in in, in that field. But it's um, yeah, it's it looks very good. very promising, is what I'd say. I I yeah. think it is like, um, yeah, I think they're definitely worth exploring. But it's you know all those it all seems to be pointing in the right direction for sure. Um, and there is some good quality research out there now as well. I think in this instance, you have to ask yourself as well, will it do any harm? Um, and if it's potential benefit and doesn't do any harm, well then what's to lose? What do you have to lose? Yeah. True. Well, um, coming into a bit conscious time, so I'd like to say thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you and learn a bit more about Hexis? Sure. So I think the best thing to do is to, on Instagram, we're putting out loads of recipes that people can try during lockdown at the minute. Uh, so they can find that at, at Hexis underscore performance. Hexis spelled H-E-X-I-S. Um, that's probably the best place. I'll pop up there every now and again, but I'd say head over there and that's where they'll certainly find the most useful information that they can, can have a go of themselves. And also probably the best uh, protein pancake recipe <laughs> you, are not, so you are the king of protein pancakes I'll give you that but I'll, um, I'll link all that up in the show notes but yeah and again Danny thanks a lot for coming on it's been a no, very, very interesting conversation great thanks for having me again I'm sure good to catch up yeah anytime anyway take care buddy bye